their musicianship is very good. They're skilled musicians. Yeah. I mean, they're very skilled musicians and a guy who plays turntables. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the show where lifelong musicians, friends, and above all, fans of music dive deep into the stories behind some of the most influential albums of all time. We're excited to get into this week's artist. We have a special guest to get into. We're going to tell the story of the album. We're going to play clips from the songs. If you haven't heard this one in a little while, don't worry. We're going to catch you up on everything you need to know about this band and about this record. And I thought I'd quickly kick things off with a quote. This is from the lead singer of the band. And he said, speaking of the headspace he was in when they made this record, this is just my opinion, but there was largely a lack of substance going into popular heavy music at the time. I thought this was a missed opportunity. To me, there was a great opportunity there to use the power of a loud guitar and dynamic drumming to convey some larger messages. We're talking, of course, about Incubus and their seminal breakthrough work, Make Yourself, which came out in 1999. Before we start talking about this, introduce our guest, give our encapsulated reviews, I'd love to play a clip of the first single and one of the most successful songs on the record. It's called Pardon Me. A decade ago... I never thought I would be at 23 on the verge of spontaneous combustion, woe is me But I guess that it comes with a territory Anomalous landscape of never-ending calamity I need you to hear, I need you to see But I am half, oh, I can take an exploding scene Back in evidence, possibility Okay, now that we've listened to that snippet of music, you kind of know approximately what we've been listening to this week and what we're about to dive into. I want to first introduce our special guest, Casey Cavalier from the band The Wonder Years. He's a podcaster, he's a guitar player, and he's here to talk Incubus with us. Casey, welcome. Yes, I am. Thanks for having me, guys. I am very excited about this, and actually even more so after hearing that that quote from Brandon Boyd. This is going to be good. We're going we're gonna to get into it, and I'm hoping that you, Casey, can give us some additional context for this band, Incubus. I think everyone else in the studio today is coming at it. Relatively new, of course, we've heard the hits, but we're going to see. Let's start by throwing it around around the room and getting tweet-length reviews of Incubus's Make Yourself. And I'm going to throw it first to Tom. You always throw it to me first, Rob. It's like you want the snarkiest take first. And I got a few snarky takes up my sleeve for this one. After my first run through, I wrote down, it's like corn with a forward-facing C. It's like 311 for smart people. But overall, I actually <laughs> found that it rose above the pablum of general new metal that was going on at the time mostly through its interesting rhythms and interesting use of harmony. So it grew on me. I'm not there yet that it's a must here, but I'm ready to be convinced. 
Excellent, excellent. A little longer than a tweet, but okay, you got some of your, your takes in there. Let's kick it over to Alan next. Hey, this is Alan here, and uh, my tweet length review is, whatever tomorrow brings, I'll be there. Mercifully, no longer listening to this album. Oh. <laughs> no, no. I will uh, provide more nuance along the way. It's not going to stay in the, in the rotation for, for much too longer. Don't pull punches just because we have a guest uh, in the house. Yeah, all right, all right, all right. Fuck this album. No. <laughs> Yeah, you have no idea what I'm bringing to, and I would not be here on the show if I was afraid of getting some hate for the takes that I have. Stand stand by your hate, Alan. Uh, hey, uh, let's dance. At least re- relating to this album, that is. That's okay. You don't take the album, and I can totally hear that. You're definitely not the first one, and we'll get into more of that, too. Before I give my tweet-length quote, I'll just qualify this by saying I was never good at Twitter. I wanted to be very badly and I just I never worked. I never got it. I'm sure the same fate will befall me with threads now. <laughs> All of that is to say that I actually I love that you, Alan, you and I already have some some common uh, wavelengths here. I, too, chose to pick out a quote from the lyrics here. I'm glad I'm not alone. I pulled a quote from a song, a song called Clean, which I think is track nine in the album. Say what you will, say what you may. But there's a reason this album went double platinum, Alan. So who really gives a shit if it was new metal or not back in the day? <laughs> don't uh, also don't count my characters on that because I'm sure that went over as well. But that's OK. That's OK. All right. We, we got a lot to get into here. This is Rob here. I'm just going to give my tweet length review, which is a little closer to some of the comments Tom already made. Alice in Chains harmonies, Deftones distorted guitars, and the timeless sound of a DJ making record scratchy scratch noises. What's not to like? The DJ record scratchy scratch part. That's what's not to like. <laughs> right, yeah. No, honestly, we're, I think that's exactly what we're about to talk about, right, Alan? <laughs> Rob, you did. You hit a lot of my notes as well, or at least some things that I had uncovered. And, and I will just say, look, I do think albums like this, I, I do find really hard to review in a sense, or at least to fairly evaluate. Because on the one hand, I didn't find this enjoyable enough to really get excited about, but not bad enough to completely shit on. So I feel like I'm in sort of a like... A little bit of a no man's land here, but I'm going to do my best to, to shit. Well, I think like a lot of records, it's of its time. We're going to get into the background soon, but if we can just kind of segue into general impressions, I will say that despite that snarkiness I laid down, and we will continue to make fun of the DJ who's in this band for some reason. I have no idea what he's doing in this band, but it did grow on me. It rocks pretty hard. I do think they do some interesting things that elevate the music. The the new metal genre, it's already been dropped as a term. That sends a shiver down my spine right away. So I wasn't excited to get into this when I saw that tag on it. But that said, it's better than that tag makes it sound, certainly. I think that the biggest strong suit of this band by far is the rhythm section. Oh, absolutely. Rhythm section is pretty killer, and they do a lot of interesting things. So you got Dirk Lance on bass and Jose Pasillas on the drums, and you can tell that they started playing together at a very young age, and they developed their musical identities together. They got better playing together. And they have a a sense of what space each other are going to occupy and a really good sense of when to mesh those spaces up and when to space those out. Overall, if this did not have the rhythmic intricacies that are presented by the rhythm section, it would have been way more ho-hum. But it does elevate it and sets it apart from a lot of those other bands that have been name-dropped as being of that time. That being said, I'm not trying to downplay Brandon Boyd's voice either. I think he's got a really good voice, and I think he uses his voice 
in an interesting way. I'm not giving much credit to the guitar. I'm not giving much credit to the to the DJ here. I think you got the voice and you got a really good rhythm section. And that's what makes Incubus sound different than other bands. And again, right away, it didn't jump out at me. But upon repeat listens, you get into some of those intricacies and you can really start to appreciate that there is care put into it. And I think that there, this album seems like there was care put into it generally. Yeah, I'll, I'll agree with that. They were always fighting an uphill battle in my mind because I'm a child of the 90s, as I know, you know, Rob and Tom, you are, I can't speak for you, Casey, but I've always associated this as being like a really bad era of music in the rock sort of landscape. And so in my mind, I've always lumped this in together with here's how I actually first heard about Incubus to give you an idea. A friend of mine, I remember in college comes back from like Ozfest or something. He's like my two new favorite bands, Limp Bizkit and Incubus. And I was like, knowing this guy, I was like, there's no way. Bands are <laughs> and so they've forever been sort of like anchored together in my mind However, having listened to this, it's not my thing. I'm not going to listen to it again after this, as I've mentioned. But I do have a new respect for the instrumentation, the craft that they put into this. It's not throwaway music that I that I maybe thought it was initially. It's not Limp Bizkit. No, definitely not. Okay, wow. Honestly, I was about to start making some notes. First of all, we got to go all the way back, Tom. Your tweet review with 311 for smart people, was that <laughs> is that accurate? Because honestly, yes. truly, I was like, yo, we will definitely at some point hang out outside of this. If you're giving me those two things, I can already <laughs> tell you that my band, with the second I get back on tour in September, that's going to light light the fuck up out of the bus. I They're going to love that um, because we have had a ton of new metal debates raging from we over time switched form. Eventually you run out of places to go with what constitutes a sandwich in the van and other discussions. And then you go to are the Deftones a new metal band or not discuss. We've had a lot of these new metal debates back and forth that honestly, thank God my, my bass player is not on here right now because he would wipe the floor with how new metal this album is. But that's honestly kind of, I think, part of the point, because I look back at it in the rearview mirror and it totally was the fucking family values tour era of Corn Limp Bizkit. My whole overarching take on this time and this album and why I kind of love it is because I think for mainstream music fans, it did just get lumped into the throwaway bullshit new metal stuff because their first two albums before it, Science and Fungus Among Us, were decidedly in that lane, right? But if you look at the albums after this, they're decidedly not in that lane. It's almost kind of like they have that post-drive acoustic single thing where a lot of those Ozfest-esque fans were straight up giving this band the middle finger for being like, you guys sold out on this album, right? The same album that you can listen to and be like, this is not for this is new metal ickery all over. Right. So I think that's the that's an interesting point in that. I, I think it was totally lumped in with it's that guy's favorite band. I don't know about that. Right. I hope he's not listening, by the way. <laughs> I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure th I'm sure that guy in heavy air quotes may be listening. But I think that's kind of uh, what was really interesting about this um, for me is that it gets thrown into that new metal debate. Also, as someone who a couple years ago did a Limp Biscuit cover set and had to learn those guitar parts and actually not saying it was high art, but I had fun doing it. I will admit that. What I think is interesting, I'm going to throw a hot take back to kind of disagree with Tom and Alan here real quick. You mentioned the rhythm section, undeniable. I think that's kind of at the crux of like, 
a lot of new metal bands, that's kind of really what they're hanging their hat on at the end of the day. This one, however, and Incubus specifically as a guitar player, and I think I was I was like 13 when this album came out, 13 or 14. And to me, what I remember about that era was actually, interestingly enough, the guitar player, Mike, was the thing that set this band apart because the way he wrote and the way he composed stuff you, you already mentioned like some interesting harmonic takes. That to me, I think this band is not in any way getting out of this new metal world and being taken seriously if it wasn't for him writing in the style that he did. And then having a vocalist that could find some lines and fine lanes over top of that. Not to mention that now, if you fast forward like 24 years, there's some bands that have come out of the hardcore metal and punk world. A band called Turnstile right now is doing really well and having an incredible run. They just opened, they were just direct support for Blink on their whole arena tour. And I've played shows with that band in like 200 cap clubs and they've been at it for a while. Their new record that they made has like chorus pedal all over the place and feels like this 90s grunge like revival thing. But to me, I remember hearing that shit in a like more mainstream context on albums like this, where he wasn't afraid to like make some create some of these soundscapes with analog pedals. And his, I remember like looking at pictures of his board. I don't know what was on there now, but it was definitely like a bunch of phasers, flangers, chorus stuff. And the way that they use them, instead of taking a much more in the box approach, which I'm sure is now how bands are 99 out of 100, probably gonna take a stab at at least demoing ideas like that. I found that really compelling. So to me, it's the guitar player. Yeah, I'll, I'll rep him a little bit. You mentioned the composition. I think the composition is relatively strong, and I'm understanding him to be somewhat of the mastermind behind some of the composition. That said, I think he suffers. No, notice that no one is repping the DJ who's on the turntables. Kill more. <laughs> the guitar player suffers a little bit because he does have a lot of weird noise coming out of that guitar, but I can't always tell as a listener if that's from the turntables or if it's from the guitar. Actually, let's talk about the band and then we can talk more about the sound. So we've alluded to a few of these folks. This band was formed way back in 1991 in Calabasas, California, which is a wealthy sub of Los Angeles. They initially bonded over bands like Fish and Primus. Just imagine those two smashed together and here you are. The Primus oh, yeah. thing I can I can get. I cannot see this band getting down to Fish at all. I think what they liked about it though was the grassroots way they built their following. And Incubus, they now are I think thought of as a pretty huge band. And they did have some hits, but I just, I always thought of them as that slightly underground, almost on a Radiohead type level where everyone kind of knew who they were, but they were never quite at the top of the bill. They were never quite the headliner at whatever festival. Anyway, these guys went to high school together, so y'all were right. They've been playing together for a long time. The core of the band has been playing together a long time since high school, and they started gigging in high school. We have Brandon Boyd, the singer. We have Mike Einziger on guitar. We have a guy called Jose Pasillas on drums. He was mentioned. DJ Kilmore on turntables and a guy called Dirk Lance on bass. This is DJ Kilmore's first album with the band, actually, too. We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. Don't worry. Don't you worry. There's some, well, there is some, some drama. Research, I'm sure. Yes. There is some drama. But no, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning that when they started in the early 90s, this is the days of of early grunge. You know, Nirvana was just coming out. Metallica's Black Album. And these guys even said they started playing shows around LA when they were 16, 17, playing Metallica covers. 
One of the things that helped them start to get a following right away, I thought this was a funny little anecdote, was that Mike, the guitar player, was gifted as like a 16-year-old by his mother. He was gifted something called the Joy of Sex, which is like a Western Kama Sutra. And so what they did was they took, and there's a bunch of drawings of sexual positions in there, and they put those on their show posters and then flyered local high schools all around. So people, I guess just because it seemed forbidden, they could get a lot of high school kids to these shows pretty readily. They recorded a record on their own called Fungus Among Us, the first record they did. This is when they were still like around 18. They were touring, but then what happened was the key thing was they got picked up by, for OzFest. In the, in the kind of mid to late 90s. And they were playing with bands like Tool and System of a Down and even bands like Megadeth. That might have been where Alan's friends saw them. I want to just make one point here because this kind of came up earlier in your quote, Rob, where they were saying you can take heavy guitars and put a message behind the words. Use the heavy guitars to put a message out. I'm like, you toured with fucking System of a Down. They're talking about the Armenian genocide all the time. You're telling me that those guys didn't have a bigger message out there? <laughs> Fair enough. And But I think what they were thinking of was some of the other bands y'all mentioned, like sure. Limp Bizkit, who were so popular at the time. And let's be honest, if Fred Durst is at the forefront representing your genre of music, that's not a great look, no matter what the genre is. Let's think back to... God forbid, the Kid Rock episode, where we talked about the birth of new metal and how quickly new metal got perverted. Bands like Korn and the Deftones basically got huge, and then all the record labels started throwing tons of money at any band that was like even remotely connected to the new metal genre. And it went from Korn singing about being sexually abused and being called gay in school and beaten up and bullied to Kid Rock and Fred Durst within like three years time because it just got flooded with money. And so I can see why Incubus kind of rode that wave of like, hey, if that's what you got to do to get a record contract. That's what you got to do to get on the radio. That's what you got to do to get on OzFest. We're going to make our sound like that. Well, but I think that was some of the tension that I actually had. And it's something that surprised me a little bit about them is like not to keep piling on with this idea that they were lumped in with these other bands, but like this sounds like late 90s, early 2000s. It evokes that era so much just in the tones of the guitar, the way the harmonies are stacked. But at the same time, what I found kind of refreshing in a good way is the subject matter is not, it's not misogynistic. It's not, you know, a lot of that shit, Limp Bizkit and, and those other bands, it was pretty kind of like gnarly and juvenile, but these lyrics don't exactly like speak to me in a, in a big way, but I was pleasantly surprised that they weren't like, chasing that garbage that seemed to be popular. So it was alluded to, but another thing I think is, is relevant here to your comments is that Make Yourself is their third record, and it's considered a big inflection point. The band knows when they go in to make this record, when they start writing and recording these songs, that this is a pretty big pivot in terms of their sound and the subject matter, and they kind of sense they were going to isolate a bunch of their fans, and they were okay about it. And part of that was taking a more emotional, personal approach to songwriting. So just to continue the story, they make their first record, they're getting some grassroots support, and they sign a seven-album deal with Sony. <laughs> that's a bad move. I mean, it worked out for them, but that's generally a bad move. <laughs> seven-album deal. Yeah, it's, it's not an amazing plan. What I found interesting about that was then, then I later read that they considered themselves really savvy because at, by the age of 16, Mike was a runner at Interscope. And he considered Jimmy Iovine and a guy called Tom Whaley, who was the head of Interscope at the time, 
mentors to him. And he got exposed to a lot of what was going on. This is when he was 16, 17. And yet they still managed to sign this this seven-record deal that would a little bit come back to haunt them. But the point of the story is, if you go back and listen to Science, which was relatively successful, this was the first one they did with Sony, it's much more Red Hot Chili Peppers, punk funk. Frankly, it's kind of unlistenable to me. Like I, I way less want to listen to that. It's a big shift in the sound. They toured extensively for it, I think for something like 18 or 19 months. They were exhausted. They came back off the road. And within about eight weeks, they wrote all the material for Make Yourself. But they knew, the point is, they knew that it was going to be a big change and that they were going to isolate some of the fans that they had built up. And they didn't care. And I love that. That's honestly punk as fuck. It's they're like, we're going to make this one's for us. And at that point in their career, it's kind of a perfect way of even in my little extrapolated Twitter review. That was kind of it. There's a reason it's still interesting to debate whether or not this is or isn't a new metal album. And even people that are conditioned to think that entire subgenre is throwaway. It still has some interesting redeeming qualities in the composition of it. Considering what it was up against, yeah, I think that's also pretty interesting to thus a smarter person's 311, or was it Corn? I forget, but either way. So that's a really good point, I think. These guys were good friends with Corn too. They credit Corn with taking them under their wing and helping them out a lot as a band. And yeah. They just said they were just the nicest guys and just helpful to kind of the next generation of bands, even though they're probably only a couple years apart. But I think that's a good segue into just talking about our favorite segment here, Incubus by the Numbers. In case there's anyone out there who hasn't heard of Incubus, let me tell you, let me tell you the first number, 23 million. That's the number of records these guys have sold. So whether you are aware of this band and their hits or not, they are a huge band. That is nothing to sneeze at. That's incredible. I like, that's impossible to overlook, honestly. Yeah, they're doing okay. (laughs) It's like the aunt that hasn't heard of your band and just knows you're a musician at Christmas. They're like, oh, well, good luck with it. It's like, honestly, doing real okay. Like (laughs) playing three nights at Red Rocks this summer, you know? (laughs) And I hope somewhere out there, all of those members of that band have had that kind of interaction. I'm sure they have. It was probably around the time that this record was going on. We're like, are you kidding me? We're about to go play to like 5,000 people a night. We're going to be just fine. They can handle a little shade thrown by us, I think. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. It's got to be funny at this point. So next number I want to throw out there, 100,000. That's the number their second album, Science, it's science in all capitals as an acronym, sold. And then they toured extensively for it. They built a fan base on the road and they came back and made Make Yourself, which went double platinum. So from 100,000 records sold to over 2 million pretty quickly. We'll talk about the rise of Make Yourself. It actually was not an instant hit. It itself built some grassroots fanship over time through the use of singles. We're going to get into that in a second. But it was a big jump for them, and it elevated them, and they stayed up there consistently. The next album they put out, called Morning View, also went double platinum, and they've been playing big shows, big-time shows ever since. Okay, we talked about how they, right off the bat, before really selling any records at all, signed a seven-record deal with Sony, probably never a good idea. So many young bands getting taken advantage of. They ended up producing three of those albums. Like I said, two of them were, were effectively mega hits, and so then they sued to get out of the contract, ultimately settling on an $8 million two-album deal to finish it out. So not too shabby. And the last number I want to bring up to you guys, number one. <laughs> one is the number of inter-incubus DJ beefs that escalated to police action. 
So this is from a MetalSucks.com article entitled, Former Unimportant Band Member Threatens to Kill Current Unimportant Band Member. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Are you sure this isn't a Hard Times article? Are you sure this isn't that? That's what I thought, too. I double-checked. But no, there turns out there there has been DJ drama between the DJ they fired from the previous album, Science, and the DJ they enlisted for this album. So who instigated? DJ Life? So DJ Life is credited with Turntable Kung Fu on Science and I believe their first album. But he was fired after the, sometime during the Science Tour or after the Science Tour and was replaced by the DJ that's on Make Yourself, DJ Kilmore. DJ Life apparently had some incident where he spit in DJ Kilmore's face, which led to Kilmore, the new guy, filing a restraining order back in like 2003. It's not metal at all, by the way. Restraining order, not metal. I'm not fucking with a guy whose last name's Kilmore. That's, I'm leaving that guy alone. Honestly, confrontation does pain me so. Maybe we can all just take this moment to agree on one thing, that this is actually the most fucking new metal thing you can do if your former DJ fights your current (laughs) DJ. And that's the only beat. None of the other actual band, and they're like, we're not fucking dealing with this. What blows my mind is that they had a DJ. They start out, they're in high school. They enlist a DJ. He's in the band. It's a rock band with a DJ for some reason that, let's just be honest, just doesn't make sense. They fire him. They have a good reason to. He actually, the reason he was fired reportedly was that he accidentally deleted a track in the studio and just, <laughs> you know, that's not the reason they were like, you keep going wicka wicka wah. We want you to go wicka wicka woo. They, they fire a DJ and then they're like, but we got to get another DJ. Like that was their chance to get out of the DJ game. How can we continue? I just see this as really you're cutting that guy in on the money. I'm a, I'm a guy. I'm one sixth of a band and I know how hard it is to actually be making a living out here. Even when our band's doing well, I'm like, really? Did you guys need to pay a DJ for this? Oh, and equal equal songwriting credits yes yeah i do wonder it does say co-songwriter of the band so i wonder how much heavy lifting old gavin was doing early on so let's talk about this because it's come up on many podcasts before but these fellows had the foresight i think to say all tracks written by and just list everyone in the band from day one to avoid some of the conflicts that befall bands very very commonly especially when success happens Hey everyone, we'll get back to the episode in less than 30 seconds, but I wanted to take a moment to ask you, yes you, to share this episode with a like-minded friend, or if you happen to be a super fan of today's artist, post a link to this episode in a fan forum, a Facebook group, a Substack, or anywhere that you geek out with other fans. This small step helps us spread the word about the show and helps us continue to bring you the stories and commentaries on the music you love and maybe hate. So they're not really going into how it gets written. I kind of heard through interviews, it sounds like Mike, the guitar player, is one of the primary composers, but in any case, all the songwriting credit is shared equally. So Kilmore comes in on Make Yourself and makes quite a bit of cash. It's a pretty good deal. Off of this. Pretty good deal. Pretty good deal. I also, just because I was curious, you know, I went deeper into their catalog, their more recent stuff. DJ Kilmore is, is still in the band, but at some point, a couple albums later, he starts getting listed as a keyboard credit. And I'm just picturing yeah. them pulling him aside, going like, listen, man, we love you. You're great. You're our brother. However, we do need you to do something other than record scratches now. Can you please learn keyboards? That, to me, is amazing. That moment right there is an incredible sketch comedy moment if you wanted it just like, <laughs> like a new a, 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 yeah a new metal spinal tap moment where they're just like starting to try and tease it like they're going to a music store and they're like 
let's maybe go check out the keyboard section. You know, that's this cool <laughs> section over here. Right. You can kind of just go ding, 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 one hand. It's all good. Yeah. I'm just picturing this guy in the studio where his only arrangement notes for all the songs are like, maybe we could go wicka, wicka, wicka in this part. Can we get a section like that? It's like, I think we already have that section in every other song. Maybe you could just chill out on this one. I guess the pie is pretty big when you're selling 22 million albums. It's sort of like a rounding error to, you know, kick the guy some... Gosh. rock radio was still very real terrestrial radio was in its heyday you know what i mean like warp tour ozfest all of those things two resurgence in five years of woodstock and things like that and new metal was decidedly at the top of the second one there was money to be made as as you mentioned earlier yeah and these guys were just before napster like Napster was just becoming a thing in like 99, 2000. Yeah. They were still getting CD sale money. And that is the sweetest plum of all. So let's just talk basic stats this record. And then I think we can transition to talking about some of the tunes and kind of how this record actually blew up because it is kind of an interesting story. It was released, we already said, I think October 26th, 1999. It was recorded a little earlier in that year at a place called NRG Studios in L.A., which I looked up, same spot where Hootie and the Blowfish's Cracked Review was made. Ooh. Yeah, there's a bunch of big records made out of that spot for sure. That was mostly for our friend Phil. He's not here right now, but he'll appreciate that one. And they did something smart, which is they brought in a an experienced producer in a guy called Scott Litt. And he's the guy, we've actually talked about him before because he produced a couple of the great REM albums, or at least co-produced them, Automatic for the People, Green monster he also mixed and somewhat co-produced in utero and the nirvana unplugged album and clearly he helped them elevate the sound i do think there are some nice production uh, touches on here yeah big old rock guy for all the years that i've known this album and we talked about it when i went back i was like holy shit i've never looked up who produced this like how is that real i'm a guy that nerds out about that shit all day long and this one somehow escaped me so it was interesting to see that he was responsible for a lot of those rem records who now me being down here in georgia uh, i was just in athens two days ago so very big impact when you hit the city limits do they just like start throwing rem singles at you that's it like, you just hear it they pump it in to downtown yeah it's it's very it's kind of creepy but kind of cool so let's use that as an opportunity to segue into talking about some of the individual songs. I would love to kick things off with the opening track from Make Yourself. It's called Privilege. Isn't it strange that a gift could be an enemy? Isn't it weird that a privilege could feel like a chore? Maybe it's me, but this line isn't going anywhere Maybe if we looked hard enough, we could find a back door Find yourself a back door I see you in my dragon was ahead of his time in the subject matter i gotta give it to him talking about the privilege of being born in america basically that's and why are you so fucking upset 
you were born in America. It's not that damn bad. In a wealthy part of America, too. It's like, where's the angst coming from? <laughs> right. He's a very handsome person that was, yes. Yeah, raised in fucking Calabasas, which is, yeah, that is not cheap. That shouldn't be overlooked. But also, uh, again, going back to appreciate in the in the defense, stack it up against everything else that was being said in that genre. It feels a little bit nicer. I'd ra- you know what I mean? I'd rather see that. I like this tune. I think it was, a, I got excited at least when this first started. It definitely is of its time. I think like all the material, but I think it's one of the better songs. I liked, speaking of the lyrics, I think they are, it's a little bit of a stone throw at those other bands we were talking about of being so whiny and that that's all you can write about is how terrible your life is or how your parents screwed you up. But then, yeah, as you guys all mentioned, it's also, I think, said with understanding that they came from a super wealthy suburb. For those who don't know, Calabasas you know, might as well be Beverly Hills or something like that, right? So I thought it was a solid out-of-the-box song for a heavy record and maybe the best lyrics on the record. I, I would give that to you. I think probably the best lyrics. It has, it has the new metal sheen on it. And it has the one hallmark of every new metal song, which is that bass tone where it sounds like they just replaced a couple of the bass strings with like bicycle chains or something. It's like <laughs> it's like a super active electronics and like super like hi-fi. Yeah, it's not my favorite bass tone. Big thick pick that he's doing like <laughs> I don't like that bass tone. That that very staunchly places it in a time. And Otherwise, though, I don't really have a lot of complaints about it. It was a a song that seemed like it was lovingly crafted. There were some nice touches on it that I thought, again, showed that they had a good producer and showed that they didn't just kind of dash off their first effort and say, all right, let's move on to the next one. You can tell this is something that was worked in the studio, and I I really do appreciate that. My main note for this was I I put aggressively unmemorable. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'm not knocking it. I just I felt very little of the song. Like I I don't really remember much of it. I I just it felt a little bit sort of generic to me. It passed right through my my ear holes. I, I that's funny you say that because I thought it was one of the better songs. I did my ear did identify even though I wasn't super familiar with the singles, which we'll get to. That the other one sounded like radio hits a bit more than this one did. But upon multiple re-listens, I kind of got into this one the most. This does not have a hook that you're immediately like, oh, that hook's going to be running through my head again and again. Right. I didn't find that find that it had that really compelling chorus, but it did grow. It's a grower. It's not walking on sunshine where you hear it, you're like, wow, that's so catchy. And then you hear it three more times. You're like, I would never hear this song again for the rest of my fucking life. Tom, I think that's a great point. It doesn't have Nickelback-itis, right? Where you're just like, oh. And to be fair, you look at some of these songs and unpack more of them. Sure, drive a more conventional kind of chorus. This is where my ear goes. And even like remembering being a kid and reading some of those tabs in like Guitar World, seeing what Mike was doing and being like, what the actual fuck? Who would think to do this? So I do love it musically and privilege specifically the riff and underlying play of some of that stuff, taking some like pseudo dissonance, but pushing it into a really big anthemic mainstream style, but not in like a conventional. Here's a hook for the label. I always loved it as an opening track because I always felt like the thought that I had and for a rock band at that time, I think probably the most important thing you could have is get someone out to buy tickets and go see a show, go to that festival, whatever it is. 
the first thought that I always had was this probably rips live. And and you're you wax and wane with the rest of the album, of course, right? But it always does that where you're like, this probably rips live. It's funny you mentioned that, Casey, because if you Google Incubus, one of the suggested searches underneath it is is Incubus any good? And it brings you to that uh, that site live rate where they talk about basically how are bands live. And the general consensus is that they are an average band to see live, which I actually was a little surprised, I'm surprised by. by that. Yeah, I would have thought that they would have been way better. Yeah. I would expect them to be a very good live band, despite any shade I'm throwing. Their musicianship is very good. They're skilled musicians. They know what they're trying to do. They probably, I can see them having good sort of fan engagement and interaction. I am surprised to hear that. Yeah. I mean, they're very skilled musicians and a guy who plays turntables. (laughs) (laughs) Who, for all we know, might have written some of the best songs on LP one and two, right? Like we're, we're unsure. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Let's use our intuition. (laughs) Let's take an educated guess. He's wiping his tears with like a thousand dollar bill. He's like, I'm going to I'm going to work smarter, not harder. I can write these songs or I can just play turntable when they're all done and still get the same payout. Don't worry. We're going to get to him in a little bit. But let's move on now to the next song on our focus list. It's called and this was a big hit for them. I think it was the I want to say the third single. I don't have the list in front of me, but it was one of the singles called Stellar. actually that I specifically remember when it did like hit a bunch of the tab books and like interviews with Mike love it or hate it the boldness of having that riff if you just if someone played that riff for you and said this is gonna be on the radio you would have been like come on what radio definitely not terrestrial and not in on this planet but it was I kind of love the boldness of that that they were going clearly like going and knew they had a you know a song like Drive and Pardon Me, bit more conventional like rock anthem type hooks, and they were still willing to be like yeah no, that like double stop, very specific harmonic kind of styling that I just remember I remember trying to learn it and being like what on earth? But it somehow works. But I'm like, but when I listen to the record, it works. I don't understand. I think everything except for the chorus of this song is good. I think the chorus of this song sucks. Well, and I totally disagree. Really? I love the chorus. Oh, the chorus I, I listen to this is my favorite tune. Really? No, I'm with Tom. I'm with Tom. And in fact, I I have a lot of notes on a lot of songs that I that I really liked the verses. There's something about this one in particular. I think the bass work is really tasty. I think there's like oh yeah, some really nice instrumentation. The hits are like sort of off the beat and kind of cool. The chorus just felt muddy and generic to me. Anyway, the chorus will slather on distortion and hit power chords. I'm not a guitar player, so I, I will say I don't know what's going on under the hood. But I, I felt like the chorus totally derailed it for me personally. 
it's the singing for me. And I think I generally like Brandon Boyd's voice. I generally like his choices, but he does the how do you do it, that do it. He sings four notes over two words that are both two two letters long. It's over singing, and it really it makes it be less sticky as a chorus. I think that if they had worked that a little bit more and maybe just stuck, maybe just like, how do you do it? You know, like instead of do it. It just sounds so muddy and it sounds so – every time I hear it, it just bumps me from the experience. I'm like, ugh, ugh. Totally disagree. I think – to me, what makes it good is the one unexpected chord they throw in right before they hit the chorus that makes the chorus pop. They throw in that one unexpected chord. I think it's a B major in an A major song. And you're not really expecting it. It just feels like the wrong chord to go to. It feels like a key change and it just lands you back on the one. It feels very satisfying to me. I understand that you have a thing about the over-singing and the multiple... I'm sure there's a vocal term for what you're talking about, where they add too many syllables to words. I get it, but I listened to it a bunch not knowing what he was saying, and it didn't bump me in the least. Yeah, it's less about the actual words that he's singing, and I just don't think that ending a hook phrase on like that kind of is a very good device to make your hook. I got to say, I don't think they're the best at hooks generally, but I kind of don't think that's what the band is about. Maybe, maybe Casey can comment. I I know they did have hit songs, but none of these hooks were what I would call excellent hooks. I love that you say that and, and mention it because I think the way that he wrote, and I think some of that too, and maybe with a song like Stellar, because the guitar and everything under there is so fucking busy melodically and rhythmically that I wonder if that vocal phrasing, especially in this hook actually, Tom, is a convention of him trying to mirror or I wonder what it looked like where I've seen producers be like, that one note, it's rubbing something against the guitar riff. Let's get it out of there or see if we can change it happens with stacking backup harmonies all the time and you end up with some like kind of weird phrasing like weird melody jump stuff i don't know if that's exactly what happened here but i'm sure what was happening between like the guitar bass kind of stuff instrumentally probably pushed him to write something that is a little bit more obtuse or a little bit more angular than what was generally happening in pop music and rock music. And that is that is one of the things that I kind of love. I like his angular approach to singing. I just don't particularly think it works well here. And I also think that it works better for him when he does big holds with a low harmony. Because he does a lot of close harmony. He does a lot of low harmony. And I think that works really well. And low harmony generally tends to work well with like a nice hold. And you get like a meh, kind of let it. You get that whole chord. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm not saying I dislike his singing style. I actually generally really like his singing choices. I just thought that this particular chorus just did not do it for me. Part of it is my disappointment because the rest of the song is actually really interesting. And Rob, you are right. That chord that they play right before they come into the chorus is a cool chord. And it just didn't give me that payoff that I wanted. So I'm not saying I hate the song, but it just it didn't seem to live up to the potential that I thought it could have had. They do kind of have a song format, too, that we haven't quite alluded to, which is the quiet, quiet verse, loud chorus, where it feels like all the lights and all the production and all the instruments come on in the chorus. Key change bridge. <laughs> Harmonies, big power chords, the whole deal, right? That, And I just think, I think it's wielded well here. But okay, let's move on to the biggest hit of the record. And I did just check my records. 
This was the second single and ultimately the biggest song from them. It's called Drive. Sometimes I feel the fear of uncertainty stinging clear. And I, I can't help but ask myself how much I let the fear take the wheel and steer. Got no complaints. This is just a good song. Do you not like the song, Rob? No, I don't like it at all. I thought this completely... Really? This got totally lost in the Uncle Cracker Everlast of it all. Oh, my <laughs> God. Honestly, come on. Go full bore. Go all in, Rob. Say Sugar Ray. Say it's their fly. Come on, dude. You won't. <laughs> I Listen, I do think the song is a vibe, and it is consistent, and it is ultimately a successfully crafted song, but it is definitely just not for me. Something about it, it just stuck out to me. I was surprised that this was the biggest song. Let me put it that way. I can't say I hate it. I get it. It has a lot of the hallmarks of the rest of the record. It has those definite Alice in Chains vibes in the harmonies and the pre-chorus. And I like pieces of it, but ultimately it was my least favorite of the singles on this record. Yeah, to me this was one of those, like, it's not their fault. It's so ubiquitous and big. In some ways it maybe doesn't fit with the rest of the album because it's more acoustic driven. And, you know, we've also heard so many rat boys play this acoustic guitar in like at a party and stuff. And so like, right. That's also not their fault. You know what I mean? Like they would also probably hate that to see some frat guy playing guitar at some unsuspecting girl. This is actually one where a lot of people are like, this is so fucking out of left field. Like why an acoustic track on all this, aside from the obvious choices that I'm sure everybody at the label was like, yeah, give them some easy listening stuff. They cited listening to their parents Zeppelin records i think this could have been their over the hills and far away like nah it is cool for a heavy rock band to have an acoustic song on here that's actually badass i wonder if that's probably how they reasoned it to themselves and then this graduation anthem just came about i don't have a problem with the acoustic guitar if you're pitching it in that way as being rebellious for that reason then i can respect that that's fine i just don't think it says exciting as the other tracks and to me it just kind of blends in with the 90s more than some of the other singles listen there's a reason why this shit is playing at like every urban outfitters and h&m forever okay because it it just is good background music for sure so yeah you're not wrong (laughs) also the lyrics are quite vapid i found well i would also say rob when you talk about it blending into the 90s I think that you referenced what Uncle Cracker, who's the other guy that you referenced? Those people came after this. I think they saw this and were like, oh, Everlast. That's this. Everlast. Yes, Everlast and Uncle Cracker. I believe both of them were post this and were like, oh, yeah. And stained. I'm talking about what it's like. When did what it's like come out? What it's like it was had to have been this this same year. Ninety eight. Holy the year before. Whoa. Okay. That song fucking blows. Now, honestly, I think I changed my vote. This sucks now. Yeah, I really might actually have changed my vote. I'm glad we all, I'm glad we settled that. All right. 
Well, listen, I think this is one we're all going to agree on. Let's go on to the next song. It's called, let me see if I get this name out without laughing. It's called Battlescar Skralachtika. <laughs> It's nothing at all dated about this song. Look, there's 13 songs on this album, okay? There's no shame in just having 12. <laughs> like, really, if you brought 12 tracks to the producer, they wouldn't have been like, no, no, we need more. We need more okay. content. Not when, not when you got a brand new DJ and he needs his moment to shine, no, okay? but that's not him. That's not him. There's two other DJs. He had to bring in reinforcements. <laughs> Did he have to bring in the guy that spit on him? Oh, this is Cut Chemist. Oh, my God. Some of the best DJs. Cut Chemist and DJ Newmark. Some of yeah. the best DJs. Founding members of Jurassic 5 <sighs> that were already a big deal. Uh, Cut Chemist had just put out the Ozo Motley album the year before, yeah. which is fucking awesome. I actually kind of like this song. I The first time I heard it, I was like, this song is so stupid. I can't believe I have to listen to this garbage. But, you know, I really appreciate what they're doing with the rhythm section on this one. I really do. The rhythm section is killing it. And I'm not that impressed by scratching. But if I can just tune that out and just have this be a jam, I can respect it. I'm not saying it belongs in the album, but this felt like a one of those like YouTube like jam along backing tracks where it's just yeah. like <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. some cool bass work, and then just learn your pentatonic. That was my thought as well today, Alan. As I was mowing the lawn, I was like, man, I can't wait to see how this one gets torn the fuck apart. <laughs> Does it need to be on there? And then I started thinking back. I was like. I, I really actually liked Offspring's early rec, uh, early records like Smash, Ixnay on the Ombre. And I think uh, on Ixnay, there's literally like a silly interlude track. They really ham it up for the bit. But part of me was like, honestly, I always kind of liked how like then you come out of it and you're like, I am ready to go again. I had that brief thought fleeting as it was today where about this one where I was like, Maybe they they knew there was there was so much rock. It was so overwhelming. And then I was like, no, I was like, drive was like two songs ago. No, we're n definitely not. So just to be clear, you're billing this as the nothing else matters of the Incubus Make Yourself record. <laughs> the one that gives you a break that allows you to feel rock music again. I, I suppose in that analogy. Yes, I was. I when you say it in such official terms, I'm not sure I 100 percent stand by that. But it was a thought I had, and I thought you you might have been interested in it. I just don't know what the DJ is doing in this band. It just doesn't feel like it fits with this band. It's not that it's so... It did kind of just roll off my back like water. Generally, I, I tune this out. This is the definition of background music, to my opinion. But specifically, what does it do? What is it doing with this rock band? Why do they still have a DJ in this band? And why did he need to bring reinforcements in? And now I'm picturing when they're trying to sign Kilmore to the band, because remember, he's in, he's the new member, like you said. He puts this as part of his contract. He's like, no, no, I get one I get one track per record. I got a lot of interest in the in the market. Creed wants to sign me to be in their band. Oh, Creed. How do we go this long without mentioning Creed? <laughs> to be a useless member of that band. 
I can't believe we haven't mentioned Scott Stapp yet because vocally there there are some similarities. I do like Brandon Boyd, and I'm not trying to take him down a notch, but there's some similarities there. Well, that's you're doing just that when you start invoking the Stapp. I will agree and say now as we are in the era of like labels and a lot of people trying to push like features for higher streaming numbers that like this album, the feature are actually like kind of cool, but on the track where, why? Of all things, not another vocalist, really that like you're taking the DJ role. And I think that when putting it all together like this, yeah, Rob, I, I think it's like, then what are you actually doing if the one track where you're like putting it forward, you are calling in reinforcements because definitely a little silly. I agree, 12 track album. Okay, speaking of a 12-track album, let's go on to the last song on our focus list and the first single they put out that we played at the top of the show. Let's revisit the song, Pardon Me. Finally, the turntables make sense. They actually work on this song. I was like, oh, I get it. I get what you're supposed to be doing on the other songs and are not doing, to be clear. But this is additive. It's the first one that seemed additive, including the song that had a bunch of fucking scratching in it. It's the first one that seemed additive. Because he's playing with and as counterpoint to the rhythm section in a really nice way. It actually feels like an, a part that's not just layered over top later as if he's taking a solo. It feels like there's a give and take right. with the rest of the arrangement that really works. I think this is the best produced song, and it's definitely arguably my favorite song. I, I know I said the other one was my favorite song, but to me, this has really, really good dynamics. It feels like a hit song to me. It makes sense to me that they released it first. Interestingly, if they were going to make it the original single... And it did ultimately catch fire, and we'll talk about that momentarily. Why did they bury it as track... What what track is it? Track 12? It's 12, On a 13-track yeah. album? Yeah. That yeah. seems bizarre to me. Uh, so it, that did occur to me. So I didn't care for the song that much. I was sort of surprised this was a single. I shit you not, I did have a note that I thought it sounded like Creed when it got to the chorus. So maybe we were <laughs> foreshadowing that a little bit. But like, I'll follow up with, yeah, the bursting into flames and asking for pardons. Not far off base if you're talking about Creed. Yeah, maybe just yeah. asking a different entity to pardon them, perhaps. I don't know. Oh, yeah, but what I was going to say was I was struck by the fact that I respect their sort of confidence level in burying the single, even Drive. Like that, I, I would, if, if it were my band, I would have put that way higher up in the list because, you know, I would have been insecure about the rest of the material, probably. But like, I do have a respect for bands that, that are cool with putting the singles down in, in the list a little bit. For to what end, though? But okay, so let's, let's talk about this. The single came out, this is the first thing they released. They were clearly excited about it, and nothing much happened. But then something interesting happened. They went to a radio station in LA and they played an acoustic version live on the air of this song. And then suddenly, this grassroots thing happened where a bunch of different radio stations asked them to come and do the same thing. And they ended up going in and cutting an acoustic version of the song. And that's ultimately what helped bring the album cut to attention and started rolling the actual sales of the album, was them doing an acoustic EP of a bunch of these songs, including Pardon Me, 
based on these radio performances. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's straight up major label radio pitch 101. Be like, hey, wouldn't it be exciting to have the band come in and play for everybody at the station? And then one radio station gets it. And then, you know, that's kind of kind of how it works. And I think, yeah, what they probably did, interestingly enough, especially with Drive already being on the album, they were like, oh, this one actually works pretty nicely acoustic as well, which is something, I mean, my band's done multiple reimagined EP of our own songs like in unplugged we you know string arrangement formats not all of your songs work that way and some of them you can get really creative with and others you that you'd never think in a million years like some of the heaviest ones you stumble on and it's just like wow this just fits in like the singer's like lower range and just really like something nice happens and I feel like yeah maybe that's just what happened with pardon me. We've already compared Brandon Boyd to a few different singers but one comment that I have for a bunch of the songs is that he sounds like two different singers in the same song. So to me, you mentioned Scott Stapp in the chorus, and then he's like Anthony Kiedis in the verse. He's got a big, that's kind of his trick, right, for the the quiet verse, loud chorus thing, is that he's jumping up in range, and it just feels like a completely different singer. But to me, he makes it work in, in this tune. So, Oh, and sorry, the one other thing I wanted to draw attention to when we could drop a clip is the last pardon me in every chorus that's killer harmony. Well, okay, but the last one they do in the song has the high harmony, right? And every other one has the low harmony. I found that to be very tasty. He jumps up to the high harmony. Actually, you know what? I'm not talking about the pardon me. My bad. I'm talking about the... And the people's mindless games... Does low harmony every time? Does the high harmony in the last chorus? That's my main note. It's like, oh, that was the payoff I was looking for. That kills. Straight up rock production 101. Just keep it, keep it evolving. I love that and save save it for the end. And it is really good. And I think it also kind of has that interestingly non-conventional chorus structure to it rhyme scheme right it's like it not really it's not a sing-songy ABAB type thing even the chord change and like the progression in it if you really listen to it and unpack it you'd be like this is gonna be the single it's like pretty busy you know underneath it for a single but he makes it work and I think yeah what we're kind of circling on is maybe perhaps another agreement point where this is like the riffiness that Mike brings on the like guitar composition married with pushing their singer into an interesting lyrical kind of pattern that just works here because it has all the stuff we talked about that you like that, that really work for the band. Yeah. Close, low harmony, nice high harmony. And I'm going to give Mike Isinger one piece of props. I have not been too kind to him so far over the choruses on this song. There's a part and it happens like right at two eighteen on the second chorus, but it happens on every chorus where he just does this like, pick drag down the strings it's like super busy and he's playing really heavy and does this like pick drag down the strings and it's i didn't notice it for the first like four or five times i listened to it and i was like that's pretty fucking cool that actually adds this nice transition into the because it happens right at the end of the first wrap around of the chorus and kind of wraps back into the chord pattern it's really good it's tasty i'll give it to him again labored over (laughs) 
Yeah, I think he's a big effects lord overall, which is I would be remiss if I didn't also say before we got out of here in the sense of like, I think a lot of the things that people probably listen to this band are just like, oh, I guess that's like what the DJ does. I guess that's him pushing a sampler pad doing that thing or him doing that. A lot of the color is like clean guitar stuff or like bloomed chords that are definitely overdubbed. But he tries, at least from what I vaguely remember, tries to do most of it live through just like regular switching and whatever. So I know his rig has him going out to two amps simultaneous on almost everything he does, which is like reasonably common. But I did pull the name of a pedal that he uses that I've never heard before that I thought you guys would like. It's called the Gonculator. Yeah. (laughs) And also, I looked up what that name meant. It gets the award for best guitar pedal name because, as I discovered, it's a reference to an episode of Hogan's Heroes. And the term basically means a pretentious piece of equipment that actually serves no useful purpose. That's pretty great. Which... For the for the bass players in the studio, I assume is all uh, guitar pedals for you guys. But no, it's a it's something called a ring modulator, which I kind of had to look up what that does. But it modulates the amplitude of of your main signal with like a square wave signal at the same time. It creates some very wild sounds right. depending on how you crank the knobs. And that's why I was saying earlier, though, you're right. I don't think he gets quite enough credit because you can't always tell in the mix what might be coming off that those DJ records. Versus him, but I think he does supply a lot of the soundscape. Does that pedal just like blow out his overtones? Is that what's happening? Just like layers a lot of weird overtone frequencies on it? No, basically it's an oscillator that I'll put into the category of alien sounds. But yeah, but they're they're pretty cool. You can be super heavy handed to the point where it's like unusable. But he definitely uses it, I think, throughout this record and probably all their stuff in like a, a bit more of a palette palatable way but also who knows maybe he has it on like a fuck button setting which is also i'm i'm here for <laughs> honestly i love that you went that deep the gonculator is not normally something that comes up here and it's definitely responsible for some of the more alien sounds i don't have a timestamp example but you're right in general he uses flange and chorus quite a bit and obviously distortion but okay i think we've probably gabbed enough here about incubus's make yourself it's that time of the podcast that most exciting time where we are going to vote on whether or not you actually need to hear Incubus's Make Yourself Before You Die. Is it a must listen? I'm going to throw it around the room briefly to get just that answer. Let's throw it to Tom first. You know, I think that the reason why my vote is probably going to differ from Casey, I'm going to guess your vote. You mentioned that you were 13 when this album came out. I was 18 when this album came out, and I'd already discovered girls and drugs and sex and all that stuff. So I think I was a lot less frustrated and angry, and this seems like (laughs) if I had been a little younger, it would have spoken to me more. Listening to it in retrospect, I enjoyed it. It was fun. I don't think that it points in the direction of a musical lineage. I don't necessarily see it as an important step in a musical lineage. And so I got to say no, even though I did enjoy the album. I don't regret listening to it. But if you were to say, hey, you know, I'm in the pit and the pendulum and it's swinging down, getting ever closer. What albums do I got to cram in before it comes down and severs my head? This is not one of them. Okay, that's one no. Let's kick it over to Casey. You know what's interesting? There have been some really, really fun anecdotes raised here. And I think what I really appreciate about this being on that list, this album being on that list, is that new metal and metal in general, in general, 
often comes with certain connotations, especially those that sometimes only reach the surface level in pop culture. And this was an interesting one where, as we mentioned, it was a band that was very much in that time running with a lot of those big bands, many of which were the flag bearers of that new metal and other like various alternative metal genres. This record does an interesting thing because actually, if you look at where the band went and then specifically went on to be known maybe much more so, I would argue, for their musicality, performance, composition, whereas I think a lot of the other new metal bands of that time didn't necessarily take their art into any other great depth beyond where it sat at that time and place. So I think that's interesting to know that this kind of came out of that world. But I also think that Music is cyclical, just like a lot of cultural moments, phenomenons, and we being at the like 24 year mark for this record. I think it's interesting, as I mentioned, some of the things that I'm seeing come back in the last bits of much larger guitar driven rock bands that are poking through. Obviously, there are much less uh, to choose from these days that are having like the kind of wide success of that like Ozfest era. But I think I see things coming through in bands like that with guys that are my age that were like 12, 13, 14, 15 when these records came out. So they had a, an impact even beyond this record, too. And I think this record was the turning point that that made that a decided reality. So yeah, that's why I, if I had to plead a case, I guess I necessarily don't. I guess that's why I think that even for someone who doesn't really love it, it's at least worth a listen. I'd maybe put it at 1002, you know, just to make somebody else happy. I'm not sure I got an answer out of that, Casey. Was that a yes or no? That's a yes. <laughs> okay. Great. All right, cool. Just, just making sure. Okay. That's a one yes and one no. Alan, what say you? It's a no for me. And I know I was sort of came out of the gate hot and a little snarky because because that's what we do. But I mentioned that this was a, sort of an uphill battle for them, just given where I had situated them in my own mind. And I do think they made it up that hill a little bit during this conversation. And I do think it I have come away with a little bit of a newfound respect. And, you know, I certainly came away even before we talked tonight, feeling that they're absolutely a cut above the Limp Bizkits of the world. But I think being on this list is is a pretty high bar. And I just there wasn't enough here really for me personally to feel like it justifies that must listen status. So yeah, it's a no for me. Wow. Right on the line here where my vote actually matters. Such a rarity. <laughs> listen, this album grew on me over the week. And while I do think it's hard in particular to judge these albums that came out in the last 20 years or so, because so often we're looking for where, like we said, where it went musically, what it led to. And it's much harder to do that when something's more recent. I'm ultimately going to go yes. One, this band is a major band. They sold a hell of a lot of records. Two, forget genres. I think if I take away anything from this week, it's the genre thing will die. No one will remember, hopefully, no one will remember the name New Metal another 50 years from now. And who really cares, right? But like I said, the record grew on me. And three, it was an inflection point for a band that continues to make music and be passionate about it today and clearly has a huge following. Like we said, they sold 23 million records. So for those reasons, I think you can sneak it in there and call it a must listen. Ooh. Well, in the case of a tie, as we know, we're going to give the tie to the runner, meaning Incubus, baby, you're on the list. Woo. Congrats. You made it. You made yourself over to the list. 
The only thing we have left to do is talk about what we're going to be listening to next week. But before we do that, I wanted to give a big thank you to Casey. And Casey, I want you to plug all your stuff right now. It's going to all be in the notes of our show episode. Oh, awesome. This was fun, guys. I'm honestly shocked that it made its way through, uh, but I appreciate all of the solid hot takes and strenuous opposition on its way getting there. Appreciate you guys having me. I I always love doing fun stuff like this. I specifically enjoy talking about the making of records, both with the artists and producers and other kinds of collaborators that are involved in them. And I do a whole lot of that over on my podcast that's called The Record Process. We're we're cruising through season five right now and everybody can just check that out at therecordprocess.com or wherever you are probably consuming this, I would imagine. And anything else uh, that you may want to know about myself or the projects that I find myself involved in, uh, you can do that at caseycavalier.com. That pretty much covers it, I think. Awesome. Yeah, it's a great podcast. I can vouch for the record process. Go give it a listen. All those links to Casey's stuff will be in the show notes. Thank you, Casey. Been great having you. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. Now we're going to throw it to Tom to consult the great Oracle to see what we shall be listening to next week. Thank you very much. I have the Albinator here. It's been doing yoga in the quarter, in the corner. One of the things we didn't talk about is apparently what Brandon Boyd is a big yoga guy. He would like do yoga poses on stage and stuff like that, which if I'm being honest, seems a little douchey, but okay. You know, he's pretty ripped though. I got to say like, you know, he's, <laughs> he's doing all right for himself. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's a good looking dude. And I'm sure that had nothing to do with their commercial success at all. No, uh, but we have the Albinator significantly less look, less good looking than Brandon Boyd, but we're going to give it a spin here and see what we will be listening to next week. Without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to... The album is 17 Seconds by The Cure. I am excited for that. I actually am not familiar with that album, but I do like The Cure. Yeah, I don't know that album at all. I, You know, honestly, I have a confession. I've always kind of wanted to listen to The Cure, but I, other than the hit stuff on the radio, I don't think I know any of their tunes. Never listened to a Cure album. They seem like a band that you would like. I am going to go ahead and pull up the track listing here. You're not going to know a single song on this album. Great. I like that even better. I don't want to be distracted by hits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, listeners, please listen along with us to The Cure and join us here again next week to discuss The Cure's 17 Seconds. We're excited to dive into that, but we're going to close it out for this week for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I've been Alan. And I've been Casey. Boosh. Boosh.